You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with your hosts, Andy Grant and Apio Hunter. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having. But you don't need to be a man to join us. The Real Men Feel Show is produced live each Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern for your growth and enjoyment. Listen to us on podcast platforms including iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also watch the show on YouTube by visiting realmenfeel.org slash YouTube. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on iTunes by visiting realmenfeel.org slash iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at realmenfeel.org and on Facebook, facebook.com slash realmenfeelshow. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Show your support for Real Men Feel by shopping at realmenfeel.org slash swag, by visiting digitaltipjar.com slash realmenfeel, or even text us a tip. You can show some love for Real Men Feel by texting Real Men Feel, that's all one word, to 504-226-5306. You'll receive a link back to complete your tip and choose the amount. This is a weekly program and your reviews, comments, feedback, and participation are welcome during the live show and anytime in our Facebook group, on Twitter, or at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's dive into this week's show. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. I'm your host, Andy Grant, uh, here to guide you through the darkness that is known as the heart of men. Well, actually, I don't, I don't even want to add to that sort of stereotype because the heart of men is not really this dark, horrible place. Um, and I should give one warning this week. Uh, since the last show, um, just under a week ago, I'd put my dog down. So if anyone says the magic word, I might burst into tears. And the joy of having a magic word is I don't know what the magic word might be. But uh, it's been, I haven't burst out for no reason for at least a couple of days, so we're probably safe, but I just wanted to address that. And I also feel like I'm in a new studio. I don't know if it's apparent to anyone else in the world, but I have a new wall behind me. So it's a little wider, it's a whole panel wider, so I can actually like move and touch things. And uh, so it's a thrilling day here in my little room of the world. <laughs> but, uh, I hope it's a thrilling day for my co-host and friend Apio Hunter as well. It is a thrilling day. In fact, I was going to make that observation about it. Doesn't, isn't that Tatami's screen behind you a little bigger now? So, And I noticed it's, it is multi-paneled. Instead of just being three-paneled, it's multi-paneled. Yeah, I'm, I'm one panel wider. I went from a, we've grown from a three to a four wall because I, I have, maybe it just means I have more junk behind me than usual. I needed a bigger wall these days. But. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I always consistently have the one wall behind me just showing those three banners because if I were to show the rest of my office, uh, not so good. <laughs> well, uh, here to talk about clutter. No, not at all. <laughs> Our guest this week is here Emotional to talk about clutter, maybe. Yeah. Oh, nice. Nice combination. Nice save. Ooh. All right. So we're very glad to uh, to welcome author, poet, artisan, coach, Mr. Rick Belden. Thank you, guys. I'm glad to be here. Cool. So, uh, Rick, um, you're here kind of as a as an expert of on father wounds and mother wounds, and is it, is it the best place to just start off with with what those means? Because I understand there may be some different definitions that people might be familiar with, as opposed to how you're going to lead us into this discussion. Yeah, I think that's a really good place to start because there is, there is some uh, there's some variation out there depending on who's talking about it. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, read a definition for you here 
for both of them together because they share at, at their core what I consider to be common characteristics and dynamics. Great. Hmm. So uh, my definition is a, a father wound or a mother wound may be thought of as an injury to the psyche of a child resulting from significant dysfunction or disruption in relationship with a parent. In some cases, it's the result of a parent's absence or unavailability due to death, illness, adoption, or other circumstances that dramatically separate the child from the parent. But more typically, a father wound or mother wound is a complex of injuries to the child's psyche received over many years, often as a result of the parent acting consciously or not out of his or her own woundedness. So that's my starting point. Right. Mm. So is this kind of a, a more specific way to examine um, inner child wounds and inner child work? Certainly that's an aspect of it, yes. Yeah, and, and for, for folks that understand that, that sort of approach, then uh, that's a good entry point, yes. Oh, cool. And um, are these wounds something that you discovered through scholarly work? Did you get into this through your own experience? How, how did you get into this? Everything I share is uh, centered and based and rooted first and foremost in my own personal experience. Uh, however, I have spent a lot of time over the years sitting in men's groups uh, with other men, hearing them talk about their experience. And also as a result of uh, you know, reading and studying uh, various authors and, and uh, various individuals that have just written about their own experience and talking to people. Yeah, that, that talking to people, that seems to help a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In my, in my own writing as well, because I'm sure you guys know that if you write about something, you start to develop your thinking about it, and you have to deepen that a little bit. And I've been speaking on these issues for a while now, too, and, and that always I always come out of these conversations with a better understanding of, of the thing that I'm interested in. Cool. And I do want to – let me even back up to that. So I, I know that you have multiple books on of poetry. Yes, yes. And poetry is certainly not a stereotypical masculine pastime. So what, how did you get into that? Did, is that something that, that helped you in your own healing and exploration? Or, you know, how did you come about? Yeah, it, uh, it, it came about by accident. Uh, I wrote a lot of uh, poetry in high school, and uh, then I sort of lost my connection with it, I guess you'd say. Uh, I'm not a scholar of poetry. I'm, I'm a hacker in almost everything I do. <laughs> and, uh, but that doesn't mean you don't know what you're doing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I, uh, I was having a lot of dreams, uh, back 25, 30 years ago. I first got into men's work, uh, with a gentleman here in Austin named John Lee, uh, who, uh, was, uh, sort of very interested in the work that Robert Y was doing at the time. And so I was beginning my process. I was having a lot of dreams. I was having so many dreams that were so vivid that I thought there's gotta be a better way to record these things than just trying to get every detail written out by hand. And I got this idea that's like, well, if I record these uh, dreams as a poem, uh, if I record my dreams as poems, I can, should get the essentials of it and not have to work so hard at it. And around the same time, someone else uh, who was, uh, there used to be a place, and there still is, called Austin Men's Center here in Austin. Uh, it was a big flourishing thing at that time. There were a lot of different creative groups and so forth. And there was a fellow that I met that was uh, offering a poetry group for men. And he said, bring a poem that you've written to the first group. And I thought, I don't have anything. And I thought, oh, yes, I do. I have these poems that I've written in my dreams. So I brought that in. Uh, that sort of opened up my process. I reconnected with writing poetry again. And uh, as a result of that, I did my first book, which is called Iron Man Family Outing, 
poems about transition to a more conscious manhood. And uh, that was all about the dreams. It was centered around all the dreams I was having about Iron Man, who at the time, nobody knew who that was. Uh, everybody knows Iron Man now. Uh, back in 1989, 1988, people didn't know who that was. So it was like my personal little private thing. Uh, and all those Iron Man dreams motivated me to do, to learn how to work with my dreams, which resulted in the poetry writing, which resulted in the book. So that's the, the long short story, I guess. Cool, cool. And do, do you find that, that father or mother wounds are one more prevalent in men than the other? I would say that uh, father wounds are more visible uh, and easier to access. Uh, I, I don't have the data uh, to say if one is more prevalent than the other, uh, but I think given the, uh, the distribution of wounded people uh, being kind of even across genders, I'd, if I had to guess, I'd say they're probably pretty even. But again, uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, I don't know if anybody in my early men's groups was working on mother stuff. It was all father stuff, you know, it was all, he wasn't there, he was an alcoholic, he was a mean bastard, you know, all, it was all father stuff and it was that way for me too. I mean, for the first several years, I didn't even have any knowledge that anything was awry in my relationship with my mother uh, because my father was the visible one who acted out, you know, in visible ways and, uh, and it seemed as if he was the one that was causing all the problems. And it's also, I think, it's easier uh, there's a, there's, uh, there's this kind of cultural supposition that, you know, men can be criticized and especially fathers. It's like, you want to go after your father? Sure. Go ahead. You know, he probably deserves it. You know, uh, on the other side, you know, mothers are kind of sacrosanct, especially for men. Uh, you know, it's like you're, you're, you should be looking out for her. And for somebody <clears throat> like me that comes out of a family that was really dysfunctional, uh, it, I think that's even amplified. Uh, because in my experience growing up, my perception was my father's the bad guy, my mother's the good guy. So it's okay to criticize him. I know he caused me problems. I know he did all sorts of terrible shit. So fine, go after that, you know. But my mom was the one that like kept it together. Uh, so no, I need to leave her alone. And she had a hard time. So I, I need to be her ally. And it's very imbalanced, very imbalanced. It was like, you know, 100% blame on or responsibility on one side and 0% on the other. And that's just not how human relationships work. Boy, oh boy, I'm, I feel like I'm hearing myself speak to myself right now as you were talking, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, because my experience is so very, very similar, you know? Yeah. Definitely, you know, both, both wounds, both mother wounds and father wounds absolutely existed. And yeah, I, I think you hit on something really, really important there, and that is particularly the cultural aspect that we have. And this, it's interesting because... And I'm familiar with many different cultures around the world and the social dynamics that exist in those cultures. And there seems to be that, that there's one unifying thing. It is that mother wound and father wound, how the mothers are always sacrosanct. Regardless of culture, they are held in reverence and revered in that there is nothing wrong that can happen there. But boy, oh boy, it's open season on our dads and it's open season on other guys and other men in the culture. And that seems to be perfectly acceptable. Mm -hmm. Hence, difficult conversations around something that actually exists as well, which are those mother wounds. So, yeah. wow, it's heading home with me right now. Yeah, the other thing I would add to that is with your dad, it's like, yeah, your dad's just another guy, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, he was the first guy, so that's important, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And that has a lot to do with how the father wound is experienced and how you work with it. But your mother was the first woman that you ever were in love with. Um, and that's, and you were part of her initially. That's how you started. So by definition, you have a, you have a very different sort of default relationship with your mother than you can ever have with your father. It's got yeah. to be different because of those things. So yeah. if, the, if the father wound is more visible based on, on outward actions, mm -hmm. and it's easier for man to go, oh, I'm this way because of that guy, what are some of the ways that a mother wound shows up in a man's life? Uh, well, one of the things <clears throat> I can easily think of two things off the top of my head. One is uh, if you find that you have a, a difficult time with, with uh, boundaries uh, as a man with, with women, uh, or really I would say in, in your intimate relationships, regardless of what your orientation is, if you have a difficult time with boundaries and you have a, a, a tendency toward enmeshment, um, that to me is a sign that you've got some mother wound stuff going on because again, it has to, yeah, there you go. Happy. Yeah. So <laughs> again, it speaks to that issue of having actually been a physical part of someone. And if you haven't gone through the full psychological separation, then you're going to tend to toward that enmeshment situation where you're not a separate person. Uh, and sort of a corollary to that is, uh, this idea that i still have issues with, which is that it's difficult for me to be aware of what my needs are and to assert them and express them and to hold them uh, and to retain any awareness of them when I'm in a, a relationship with a woman that I'm intimate with. Uh, I, it comes up with friends too, but it comes up most fiercely in my, in my intimate relationships. Uh, and so um, what that means is that my needs just tend to disappear uh, over time. I don't know what they are. Uh, I have no sense of them. It's like they don't exist. And, but the other person's needs are, that's, that's number one. That's the, that's the first thing <coughs> on my mind, you know, pretty much all the time. And one of the bad outcomes from that that I've experienced is that if that goes on long enough, I start to get resentful. There, you know, Cause there is a part of me that knows what my needs are. Uh, and it starts to get angry. And I start to get backed into a corner. And then when I try to express them, it doesn't come out very well. Uh, you know, it comes out not very skillfully. <clears throat> a lot of the time it takes the woman by surprise. She's like, well, I didn't even know that you needed that, you know? And, uh, so <clears throat> that's part of the pattern too. I would say another part of the pattern is, um, just in general, uh, men with mother wounds tend to have, can tend to have a difficult time even being aware of what their emotions are, uh, what they're feeling and when they're feeling it and much less what to do with it or how to say anything about it. And the final thing I would say is that um, it has to do, you, you may find if you're a man with a motor wound that you have some problems with self-nurturance, uh, you know, caring for yourself physically, psychologically, emotionally, uh, not really knowing how to do that, or maybe not feeling that you deserve that, uh, or maybe feeling disinterested in it because you never had it. Um, so those are some of the things that come to mind. Wow, those are all uh, powerful, uh, hurtful. I can see them in me. I can see them in, in other men. So, uh, does does every man have mother and father wounds? Can you can you get through life w without these? Uh, I think it's a matter of degree, uh, because parents are imperfect. Uh, there's not really a lot of support for parents in the culture. Uh, we live we've been living for several generations now in a culture 
where the amount of uh, the number of people around the core family is shrinking, <coughs> which puts more pressure on the parents. So like my, uh, my father was 23 uh, when I was born. My mom was 20. How much did they know? Um, how did they know what to do? Well, they did what they saw around them. Uh, and so uh, I think that uh, it's inevitable. And also, you know, anytime you have two personalities together in any kind of intimate relationship, there's going to be mismatches where one person is not up to the other person's needs uh, and vice versa. And that happens with parents and children too. So I think it's inevitable that there are going to be father wounds and mother wounds to some degree in all of us. Now, you know, is it deep enough? Is it extensive enough uh, that it results in a need to actively work on it and be aware of it? Well, it depends upon the circumstances and, and it also depends on the, your personality as a child. Um, you know, if you take a, if you take a child who's more sensitive and a child who's less sensitive and they you give them the same parents, uh, the, the more sensitive child is probably going to come out of it with a little bit more work to do uh, because they're going to notice more things. They're going to take things in more deeply. They're going to feel things more deeply. They're going to be more observant and notice when things don't make sense uh, more often. And so I think that's another, another short, long answer. Uh, the gist of it being that I, I think it's, it's impossible for parents to meet the needs of their children perfectly and absolutely in all cases, regardless of how much they try, how smart they are, how committed, how much are there, all that kind of stuff. And also there are external events in families. Somebody loses a job, you know, uh, somebody has an illness. I mean, all those things can contribute to these father and mother wounds because it, it subtracts from attention and focus and availability potentially. So it sounds like everybody, has them and has the possibility of them showing up in lives. And it's really, you know, how much pain each individual feels as to do they go looking for the cause for healing for something like that. And how much does it interfere with, you know, healthy function? How much does it interfere with you actualizing and having the kind of life that you would like to have, uh, the kind of relationships you would like to have? So, you know, I'm not saying that everybody has to be aware of this stuff and go, go work on it. Uh, I think if it's if you've got interference in your relationship patterns and your work patterns in your uh, sort of uh, the way that you relate to yourself uh, and those are persistent and they haven't responded to anything else you've tried, I think it's worth looking at some of these things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that really stood out to me and kind of caught me by surprise, to be honest, is, the, is that association with the mother wound of that emotional distance that so many men have. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes when in, in discussions and so forth, I hear about, you know, most guys attributing that to their emotionally distant fathers and them carrying on that pattern without really recognizing that there could be a mother wound that's in there. So that one really kind of was a surprise for me to hear. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the, the, the great feature of all that is that you get both of them at once. Um, so, you know, you really have, you can have that kind of affect from a father wound that you just described overlaid on whatever the residue is from a mother wound. Uh, and uh, so it can result in all kinds of different variations on what you just talked about. Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and doesn't that kind of make sense that that two uh, a male uh, a male <laughs> a man and a woman would come together kind of matching their you know um, lack of emotion so it's more likely that uh, an emotionally distant man would be attracted to and and couple up with a woman that's not prone to show her emotions as well. It's possible. I mean, my experience with it and my sort of 
belief and uh, sort of theory, I guess, about it is that, you know, we're in, I, I think there's some pattern, some uh, definition of psychology around this too. The idea that, you know, we're, we're sort of unconsciously driven to get what we didn't get as children and to resolve what didn't go right. Um, and so I think we tend to, and it's certainly been my experience, you know, I, I pull in women and they pull me in uh, and we're just, you know, a couple of hot buttons waiting to touch, you know, on <laughs> things that are distressing or things that are confusing or things that we don't understand. Uh, and so that's where you get the opportunity to either do, you can either do a replay uh, and come out of it just feeling like, oh, this is just hopeless. Or you can hopefully grow your consciousness a little bit and start to look and back up a little and go, okay, so, you know, am I reacting like this? Because this is really how I see things and how I feel right now. Or is this just a reflex that's kind of automatic that uh, is older than, than the situation that I'm in right now? So I think there could be a variety of configurations. I mean, you can get somebody, you get a woman who's emotionally reticent and a man who wants to extend and can never get to her uh, because she's always pulling back. So at, at worst, we're all these open wounds bumping into each other, ripping our scabs open all the time. Um, so what, what, what's the best? How, 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 what, what is the work? How does, does a wound such as these that we're talking about, how does this get healed? Well, I think that part of it is, uh, I mean, part, I can tell you how it started to happen for me, is that I kept repeating the same patterns over and over again. And, you know, if you have, if you have one point, you can't make a line. You know, if you've got two points, you can make a line. If you've got three or four points and they all line up and it's a really a straight line, then I think that's a pretty good indication that there's something going on that's bigger than just any one of those individual points. Uh, and so, you know, what you do with that is a matter of individual style. Uh, some people aren't going to look no matter what uh, because, the, you know, there are, there are really major taboos against looking at your parents and saying, uh, I don't think you did a very good job over there. Uh, and so the first thing you have to be willing to do is to say, yeah, I'm going to look at this situation a little bit more. You could, strangely enough to say, you could look at it objectively and go, okay, did everything happen that should have happened? You know, did things happen that should not have happened? And on the other side, you've got people that come out of childhood so angry that they're, they're in attack mode against the parents all the time. And I think that the only way to make any progress is to find your way to the middle um, so that you can be, have the willingness to, uh, to be critical, uh, which doesn't mean you have to do it with them. But within your own mind, uh, you have to be able to look at the situation and say, yeah, that really wasn't right. I know I was told that was right the whole time I was growing up. And every family in my town acted like that. Uh, but it still wasn't right. Mm -hmm. Sounds to me like a good part of this is to, for, for men to be able to incorporate at least some elements of mindfulness yes. in order to be able to place themselves in that space of an observer and not be completely caught up in the emotion of the story. Obviously, being able to allow the emotions to flow, allow them to be present, but still be able to be that observer as well. I agree. And I, honestly, you know, I've meditated a couple times a day for, I don't know, seven or eight years. And mm -hmm. that really helped me a lot. And, you know, again, I don't tell what people what to do because I don't believe that works and I don't want to do it. Uh, but it made a huge change for me. Another thing that was fundamental for me, and it's not for everybody, uh, but I journaled a lot. 
Uh, I think that journaling is a very good uh, self-awareness growing uh, practice. Um, and uh, I remember when I first started journaling, I go back and look at my original journals and they're all like, I, I address myself as you, first of all. And it's all about, you didn't do this. You didn't do that. Why are you so lazy? All this stuff. And, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of benefit to externalizing your, your self-talk so you can actually sure. see it. And I remember seeing that and there was a point where I thought, why am I referring to myself as someone else? And who is this mean fucker who's, like, <laughs> who's constantly berating me about what I'm not doing? Right. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that was the beginning of opening some awareness uh, within me because I think a lot, of, a lot of the work I try to do with people, I, I come to think of as, uh, as repatterning your relationship with yourself. Uh, and that's what's underneath all of this stuff. Uh, in the end, it's really not about your parents. Uh, it's not about them at all. It's about how you treat yourself. And it's about, and, and for the most part, the parents you're dealing with, unless they're living in the same house as you, uh, mm -hmm. are <clears throat> internalized versions of your parents uh, that you built inside your own consciousness that you carry around with you. Uh, and they're the ones that show up in your dreams. Uh, and they're the ones that are like nagging at you to take out the garbage you know, and, and, you know, or, or tell you you're no good uh, or, you know, any number of things. Uh, and so that's where the, and I think that's a, that's a, there's a nuance there that has been hard for some people to sort of understand because a lot of people aren't aware that they have inner lives. Um, a lot of people, and that's not a criticism. That's just kind of the state of the culture. Again, we're not really taught that we do. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of people experience their inner life and their outer life as sort of this merged entity, this kind of merged reality. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why sometimes people have trouble sort of stepping back uh, from intense situations and uh, kind of taking a different perspective on it because inner and outer are just like uh, there are no boundaries between the two and there's no differentiation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you brought up an interesting point there about, you know, what, what works for one may not necessarily work for, the, for somebody else because that's one of the an, an early lesson that I myself certainly quickly discovered when I started on, on my own process of self-discovery, personal improvement and everything like that was that every person t that I viewed as an expert or a guru or something oftentimes was teaching the path that worked for them. And it worked for some, may not have worked for others. And I found that if you treat it almost like a, like that Lego set, you know, you just take everything, you throw it together, and then you piece together what works for you, ultimately you end up becoming successful in the process. I was very fortunate in the, you know, the, the first man I worked with constantly said, if the, take what works for you and use it. If it doesn't yeah. work for you, don't worry about it. Yeah, I love Maybe that. it and comes back later. You know, sure. maybe it's not yeah. time. Uh, but this is not a one size fits all uh, expedition by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Yeah. I mean, if, if it was, everybody would have everybody would have the same wound. It, everything would be cookie cutter if the solution was always a cookie cutter. Well, and it changes over time too. I mean, my approach now is far different than my approach was 25 or 30 or 15 or 10 or even five years ago. So you're uh, saying you didn't fix this 25 years ago when you started? It's a process, Andy. Uh, so. Um, it's a it's an it's an iterative process, and it makes sense if you think about it, because you know one of the things that I mentioned in in my definition in different terms was that you know uh, these uh, this wounding occurs iteratively, it, it occur, occurs in layers, uh, it occurs you know every day of your childhood, particularly if you're talking about severe situations, 
where the parenting is really bad or it's really deficient or it's really hurtful or it's really absent. Um, you know, if you think back and you think about your childhood, you know, things going on day after day after day after day after day. So, you know, you're really being conditioned, whether it's conscious or not, to see yourself in certain ways. And some of that is through absence of attention. Um, <clears throat> you're being conditioned to see your parents in certain ways. And it's, uh, it's something that, that goes on uh, in different ways, sometimes in the same ways over and over and over again. <clears throat> from day to day and month to month and week to week and year to year for a long, long time. So it, it com it's, I've always looked at it from the beginning. I don't know how I got this idea. Maybe someone else said it probably, but um, you know, it's sort of like doing an archeological dig. Uh, you start at ground at the surface level and, and you're just kind of stripping things away and stripping things away. And then you hit, you get into a layer where it's like, Oh, there's a lot to do here, you know? And then you clear that out. And a lot of people think, Ooh, that, that God, that's over, you know? And then something else comes up in your life, and then you go down to the next layer, and some people only have to go a layer or two, and then they're good to go, because they're, they're in that much there, and maybe 10 years later, they got to do another layer or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, people that come out of more severe situations, they have an ongoing process. It doesn't mean you got to go at it every, every day, you know, like crazy, uh, <clears throat> but I think if you're, if you have an outcome in mind, uh, which is, in my case, was I wanted to be feel authentic. I wanted to feel fulfilled in my work. I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to have, uh, you know, an intimate relationship to work for me. Those are kind of things that I sort of said, okay, these are the things that are deficient, and this is what's motivating me to start. Well, if you have those things in mind and you haven't reached those points yet, then I think you're still motivated to kind of keep at it. And, and I think that as you keep at it, <clears throat> It te things tend to reveal themselves more and more because you're in the practice of observing and noticing. Right. So it's not, and, and I tell I tell myself this a long time and, and remind clients as well that even when it seems like, you know, covering the same ground, I've already looked at this, why is this happening again? It, it's different layers. It's deeper levels. And I like what you said about we can have different motivation at times to make it worth, you know, I might be so motivated to go just so deep um, one year about something, and then five years later, oh, now I'm motivated to go even deeper to a depth I wasn't aware of. Right, so, right, right. And I think of it too as a spiral, mm -hmm. uh, because that's another way, useful way to think of it. Because you, you can, well, I'm, now I'm going to do something with my hand, which people won't be able to hear. But I made a spiral motion with my hand. Uh, the idea being that you know, as you travel either up or down the spiral, depending on how you're looking at it, uh, you're going to come around to a point that is very close to a point that you were at previously. Uh, but it's not the same point. It's just kind of along the same vertical line. Uh, and then you go back around the spiral and, and you know, uh, you'll see things that look similar or feel similar. And you will have that experience, which I don't get hung up on that as much as I used to. But, you know, for years it was just like, oh my God, this again? Are you serious? You know, but again, that has to do with the fact that as you said, you've got these layers, you've got these different iterations. It's like you get hurt or you get um, left or you get uh, uh, neglected or you didn't get what you needed in, in different ways at different times. So it really is, it's, it's, you're wounded in the same area in, in not necessarily in the same way. So you get hit in the same spot. You know, it's like, you know, once you got, it's like if someone punched you in the face versus kicked you in the face versus, you know, hit you in the face with a tennis racket. I mean, you're still getting hit in the face. Uh, and so if those things happen at different times, 
then there might be different events and different times in your life that put you back in that place if you're paying attention where you're like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm mad at this guy that pulled out in front of me right now and I'm really mad, it doesn't make sense. Well, that's because, you know, this thing happened when I was 15 where somebody bullied me or cut in front of me in line or whatever. Uh, it's just, uh, if you're, once you get into the practice of it uh, and you see the value of it, I think that's the other part. It's like, if you don't see the value, why go through this, you know? Um, and that's, for me, that's been part of the process too. There've been a lot of times when I've said, hey, I wanted four things when I started this 25 years ago and I'm still working on it. Why am I doing this? And the thing that I came to realize, the, the thing I really needed that I didn't know that I needed or wanted was something I alluded to earlier, which was like, I needed to improve my relationship with myself uh, because that's where most of the actual misery was coming from. So I have not achieved a lot of the things that I thought I wanted to when I first started, but I've achieved the thing that I didn't know that I needed to, which was actually the most important thing, which is this is the best I've ever felt about myself in my entire life. Uh, and I didn't know that that was even part of it. Yeah. And that seemed, that's, it's very rare to meet a man that that is what they're after. I, I've got to make my, I got to make myself feel so much better about myself, right? Where, where we tend as men, probably as human beings to, to look out and blame and also to look out for a cause or a reason to motivate us. You know, I want to feel, I want to do better for my wife, for my kids, for my job. It's very rare to have, I want to, I, as a man, want to feel better because of me. And those are all great entry points. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, anything that gets you in uh, is, is a good thing. The thing you have to be careful with that sort of uh, motivation is, you know, uh, if you find that you're not getting that thing uh, that you wanted to get, uh, and, and it's only about getting that thing, and you feel like this isn't working, then you might just bail out. Uh, and, and it also puts, if it involves other people, you're, you're sort of putting a responsibility on them to tell you that you're getting it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and that could be kind of a corrupting situation too. Yeah, you know, the, the, it's interesting that, that you should mention that because any time, at least certainly my experience has taught me that any time that we tend to be very externally focused and we're expecting something to come from outside of us to help us feel better, we inevitably end up being disappointed. And when we're finally able to turn that, that vision back on ourselves and look internally and look at ourselves as the primary source of whatever it is that we're trying to, to get, that's when the real work starts. That's when the real healing tends to start. Yeah, sometimes the worst thing that can happen is that you get what you wanted. <laughs> that can really screw things up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Also, as we were talking about that archaeological dig and the different layers and so forth, I was reminded, I just barely got back from, from Peru, to, from a trip to Peru. And one of the archaeological sites that I visited while I was down there was the Temple of the Sun and the Moon, which is up in northern Peru, uh, which was like the center of the Moche culture. And it was fascinating because... Yes, there. It's been it's been twenty some odd years that this particular the Temple of the Moon has been excavated, and one of the things that they discovered is that every like fifty years or so, the Moche people would build another layer on top mm. of the temple, and the layer was the same, and yet is also different. Right. 
And so, you know, I was, you know, that, that spiral, you know, the similar experiences that were there um, were, were, were part of that. And those multiple layers, you have to just keep going and digging and digging and, and exposing and bringing them out to, and in the process, we ourselves learn more about ourselves. This is, you know, the, the, archeolo the, the archeologists who are working on that particular excavation, learning more about the culture, we can draw that parallel to ourselves to be able to draw that to to learn more about ourselves in the process of that excavation, the digging, and the yeah, layers. it's per it's perfect. I mean, yeah. it's a perfect metaphor, and it's also it's a it's an archetype of human behavior. You know mm -hmm. what you described. If you go to any any settlement of any age, whether it's Boston or you know some city in Europe, you're going to see that they just kept building things on top of things because yep. they're like, why should we just remove this? We'll just build something on top of it. Plus, we kind of like that old thing. We don't really want to tear it up. Uh, so, um, so yeah, that is, I think that is a very good observation and, it, and it's a good observation to bring it into the real world and say, yeah, this really is how humans behave. Uh, they yeah. layer things on top of each other. And if you want to know why the civilization isn't here anymore, you go down through the layers and you learn because I think so much of this, and again, going back to something that Andy said, um, you know, I think men in general, you know, we tend to be focused on achievement and goals and uh, external measures of, of how we're doing. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, I think one of the ways to take a little of the pressure off that if you're doing this kind of work that we're talking about is to think of it in terms of exploration and discovery. Uh, because that's something, again, to speak broadly, that's something men like to do. It's like, oh, it's an adventure. You know, we're striking a path through new territory. It's a foreign land and all that kind of stuff. And that's where a lot of, to kind of go into another metaphor, uh, I think that, um, you know, this work can be scary uh, because if you think of those, if you think of those old maps, those old European maps uh, before the globe was uh, circumnavigated, uh, they showed the world as flat. They showed it as having edges. If you got too close to the edge, you would encounter all kinds of dragons and monsters. And if you really got up to the edge, you just go right off into some kind of abyss that was undefined. And I think that applies well. It's another good metaphor for uh, the way that a lot of people start if they enter into this work, because you're getting into an area that's not well mapped. Uh, it's, it's actually a lot bigger and a lot richer than you realize. Uh, but as you get to the edges, <clears throat> there's that fear that you're just gonna fall off into the abyss because either you weren't allowed to feel the feelings that are coming up, you never saw anybody else do it, um, you were told explicitly don't go there because <laughs> something bad will happen. And in some families, if you went there, something bad did happen. Uh, and so a lot of it is about kind of, kind of uh, uh, remapping uh, the territory inside yourself and understanding uh, where your edges are and asking, is that real? Uh, am I really going to fall into a bottomless pit, you know, if I walk over there? And, and sometimes when you're doing the emotional processing, it does feel like that's what's happening or what, what's going to happen. Uh, and uh, that's an ongoing challenge for me. I mean, uh, so much of this work for me has been grief work. Uh, the, the, the entry point a lot of the time is anger or dissatisfaction or, you know, disappointment or whatever. But I think for me, the transformative element of it has been actually getting into the grief of like, I did not have the kind of father that I needed. I did not have the kind of father that I deserved. Uh, I did not have the kind of father I wanted. I had a father who hurt me badly 
uh, into all the way into adulthood. Uh, and that's a hard thing to come to terms with. Uh, that's a very, you know, for me, that was a very deep pain that I did not want to feel. And I did all sorts of things to avoid it. Um, and uh, my mother's, my mother wound was even harder. Uh, that was, uh, that was just, just kind of gruesome. Uh, to get into. And I'm not saying that to discourage people, but I do think, it, you know, you need to be realistic. It's like, you know, we're talking about some very deep, very primal uh, emotions and feelings and attachments that go back to, you know, you're a child, you're a toddler, you're pre-verbal. Uh, you know, this stuff is deep. It doesn't mean that you got to dive in there and, you know, uh, completely destroy yourself to do it. That's not the point. You know, the point is that you, you know, you work your way up to it. And when you're ready, but every time you work your way up to an edge, you have to realize this is an edge. It's not the end of the world. It's just an edge. It's a threshold that I haven't crossed before. And then you get to decide, do I want to actually make this move uh, or do I not want to make this move because I'm not ready for it? I don't have the support. Uh, I don't feel like I have the knowledge or the skill or whatever to do this properly. And if, the, if those are your conclusions, then you get to decide okay, what am I going to do about those things? Am I going to try to get the support? Do I need to learn? Do I need to read? You know, whatever, before I take this step. And then you live through it. And then mm. you're, you're better and you're more whole because a lot of this is about being more whole and not being so fragmented, not pushing parts of yourself away, not pushing parts of your life experience away because every time you do that, you get a little smaller. Yeah. So you talked a lot about how this is, internal work and you have carrying internalized versions of your parents and of yourself and you know my experience anytime i recognize i have some internalized version of someone else it's always a distortion even of myself right um so does all this internal talk mean that this is all isolated alone uh work and and healing it hasn't been for me uh <clears throat> there have been a lot of different aspects to it uh one of the more challenging and difficult aspects has been actually dealing with the actual people you know, dealing with my actual father, dealing with my actual mother, uh, and deciding, you know, having to really start to evaluate, okay, is this good for me? You know, uh, and one of the things that, uh, you know, that I recommend with, uh, that people do is with your father or your mother, after you have an encounter with them, how do you feel? You know, do you feel worse? Do you find that you're in a shitty mood the next day and you don't know why? Um, you know, do you feel like you have the, the freedom to say, I, I don't want to have this conversation right now. Uh, I know within the case of both my parents, I approached them on multiple, at multiple points saying, look, I have a problem in this relationship with you and I want it to get better. And I want us to do something about it because I want to have a good relationship with you. And that just got nowhere. Uh, so if you have that experience, then you get to decide how many times am I going to do this? Uh, and at what point do you say, okay, I don't think that's really an option that's going to be fruitful for me. And then what do you do about that? So there's that aspect of it. Um, you know, as I said before, I think, I think there aren't nearly enough groups for men. Uh, there just aren't. Uh, I wish that they were freely available and you could just walk in and it was no big deal because our culture would be completely transformed if that were the case. Uh, but I've done a lot of different men's groups as an attendee at, at, over time. Uh, at different phases with different focuses. Uh, and I don't think there's, I, I don't think there's any substitute <clears throat> for being <clears throat> in a group of men and trusting each other enough to say, man, this is going on with me and I don't know what to do about it, you know? Uh, and, and just have non, 
advisory support available where nobody's trying to solve your problems. Uh, they just want to be there with you and, and, and be good witnesses and good allies and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> I also found that uh, for me, uh, creative outlets, the creative expression have been really important. You know, we talked about the poetry that I wrote. Uh, <clears throat> art has been important for me at, at different times. Uh, I think that one of the, uh, there's a gentleman named Tom Golden, uh, who I, I really like his work. Uh, he's, uh, I, I consider him to be one of the foremost experts on uh, men's grief. Uh, and, and how to do that uh, effectively. And uh, he has made uh, a couple observations <coughs> that I think are great. One of which is that, you know, men t tend to want to make something out of whatever they're experiencing, you know? <laughs> so, you know, and it could be for some men, I mean, they do these great, uh, what do they call these things? Uh, in the UK, I think in Australia, New Zealand, they do these things called men's sheds, uh, where all you do is you go with a bunch of men, you work on a lawnmower or you build some birdhouses or something like that. There's something that's really empowering and really transformative for men when they're going through a process of grief or a process of separation or something like that to get out and actually make something, whatever it is. So it doesn't have to be artistic uh, in, in the strictest sense. Uh, it can be, you know, <clears throat> like I said, build something, uh, build, uh, you know, I like to build artifacts uh, of the, the, the state of the process that I'm in. Um, so anything that sort of <coughs> represents to you, you know, this is what I'm working on right now in my life. Um, and it can be something practical like, uh, you know, a mailbox, or it can be just some, a junk sculpture or something like that. So those are some of the, <clears throat> some of the examples of external aspects, Andy, of, of the work for me. Cool. So Hmm. And I love what you said about the men's group. Just it's it's not a place to go have people tell you what to do, and it's just mm -hmm. a place that you can feel so comfortable to share that I'm a mess, and and not be judged. Not again. Not try people to try to fix you. It's just they don't run away. Right? It's just this place to admit and acknowledge how you're feeling, and realize that other men don't don't turn their back on you. Yeah, and that they'll back you up. You know. In, in, in sort of a, a non-results-oriented way. You know, I mean, we're, we're used as men, you know, in the workplace, it's like, you know, we're going to hold each other accountable. I need you to do this. You know, you got to get this done. Whereas this is more of a sort of open sort of, yeah, man, I got your back. You know, I'm here for you. Uh, I'll listen to you. What you're saying is not so foreign and crazy. Uh, you know, I've, I've felt some of that too. I've experienced something like that too. Uh, and it's not, it's surprising how much, uh, the proper sort of attention can move an issue for a man. You know, uh, we think we've got to do something really active and really aggressive and we've got to push that boulder up that hill, you know, and all that stuff. And a lot of the time, if you get the right sort of uh, witness and you get the right sort of caring, sort of uh, like, a, like I said, non-results oriented attention, you'll just get a big shift. And then all of a sudden, you know what to do. You know, so, so that the group, the the outward, the the sharing, can can fuel the internal work again. Exactly. Yeah, it can. It isn't just this hour I'm alone. This hour I'm with a group, and they're they're separate. It's keep goes another another idea of the spiral. Even how how to exactly. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And it's so, just a way of it's it's just a way of. I think men are just so undernourished uh, when it comes to uh, that sort of attention. You know. Yeah. Uh, that sort of open, that sort of open-armed attention. 
where it's like, you know what, you're okay the way you are right now. You know, it's, it's all right for an hour, you're okay the way you are. It's like that could be phenomenally transformative sometimes, depending on what kind of state you're in when you walk in the room. So if you found yourself in a men's group that said, all right, great, the hour's up, everyone write a report of what they accomplished, that you wouldn't suggest that's a good kind of group to go to? I don't tell people what to do. <laughs> well, <I'm> gonna, <laughs> don't go to that group. <laughs> how, how often when, when men find themselves in, in the groups that you've been to, when they're just in that supportive environment and they just share and are feel supported, how often do you, dis, do you have you observed or, that they ultimately end up stumbling upon their own solutions and end up sharing that? I think pretty frequently, although it doesn't, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it typically it happens over the course of weeks, you know, right. or months. Sure, uh, yeah. <laughs> that uh, you'll see somebody's thinking start to advance. Mm -hmm. uh, and you'll see people that thought they were just, uh, you know, men that thought they were just basically anchored into, you know, the whatever that trench is in the Atlantic Ocean, you know, and they never mm -hmm. get out. Uh, they just start, they start to kind of naturally move around. They realize they've got some latitude and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, their thinking starts to open up. And just sometimes the fact that you can say, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, one of my early men's groups, uh, we were talking about father wound stuff because that was the big thing. That was mm -hmm. the thing that came up first for everybody. And the, the facilitator said, okay, how about if everybody, uh, who had a father who's an alcoholic, you know, go over to that side of the room and I want it by myself. And he said, so he said, so what's your story? I said, why didn't you join us? I said, well, my father was an alcoholic. He was just an asshole. Uh, you know, so you get, you get to hear, it was amazing to hear. It's always been amazing to hear other men's stories because I think as men, uh, you know, and I'm of a certain generation, you guys are of other generation, but it's just, and I don't know that it's changed that much. I think men tend to feel real isolated with their stories, especially with the things that cause them dissatisfaction and pain. And it mm. was it was mind blowing to me to hear other men talk about what they what they were feeling internally, not just not just kind of feeling like emotionally, just like this is my reality, you know, from day to day. I got the wife, I got the kids, I you know I've got whatever I've got a gambling problem, and I'm struggling with it every day. It's like you know, and my childhood was shit. It's like I never heard, I didn't know other people felt that way. I didn't know other men felt that way. Um, so it's, uh, it's, to me, it's always been, it made me appreciate other men more. It made me feel less competitive. Uh, it made me, and the other thing that, uh, I think is so important is, uh, <clears throat> to be able to see yourself as a child, you know, at different points, be able to see yourself as a teenager at different points. And when other men would talk about their childhood or their teenage experiences, I just, all of a sudden, instead of, instead of them being, you know, a square inch big, you know, they're like, there's like a whole galaxy over there. You know, I didn't know that other men were like that, you know? Uh, and so I, I think it's all good. I mean, I, I've been in some men's groups that, that were honestly, that were not that good. And, you know, after a while I bailed out. Uh, but most of them have been, have been great because the guys tend to come in there. Every, everybody's nervous, you know, nobody's sure it's safe. Uh, and if you have a good group, you get around to that. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, it, and everybody participates and everybody shows up. If they keep showing up, they're going to show up in good faith. Uh, and, and there's some protocol that you have to learn about not fixing the other guys because everybody, their tendency is to want to do that for various reasons. Uh, but once everybody gets, gets straight with that stuff, um, the, it's, it can be very profound and, and very touching, too, to actually see what somebody's really, really like, you know, when they put down 
the armor and they take the mask off and, and they're not trying to uh, maintain a certain impression because that's the only way it feels to be safe out there. Mm-hmm. At the risk of sounding almost stereotypical, it's like the, the toughest guys end up having the, mo- the most tender hearts. A lot of the time, yeah. I mean, I've been in groups before where I was sitting across from somebody at the beginning. It's like, oh, well, I know I'm not going to like that guy. and and then he opens up it's like this guy's amazing you know (laughs) exactly you know laurie put something in the comment in the comments a little bit earlier i'm not sure at what point uh popped in there because i just noticed it that you know the interaction in the men's group is how women tend to interact with each other almost all the time am i getting the context right laurie okay cool yeah, they, they yeah, don't need an officially sanctioned group. They just naturally communicate just that it. way. Yeah. Well, and that brings me to another great thing that Tom Golden and other people have said, which uh, you guys may have heard before, which this observation that uh, men, uh, women tend to be comfortable working face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Men tend to be comfortable working shoulder-to-shoulder. Uh, and so uh, that's one of the advantages of a men's group is that you, it, however you're – typically you wind up in a circle sitting on couches or chairs or whatever, and you naturally – because it's a group you wind up shoulder to shoulder. Uh, yeah. Now you are face to face with whoever's across from you, but it's not that sort of narrow conduit between two people. Uh, it is a group of men shoulder to shoulder, and it changes the energy. It changes the dynamic. Somehow it it takes the. It's almost like for men to look each other in the eye. It's almost like, are you trying to fight with me? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if we're if we're all shoulder to shoulder, it's just like, yeah, this is this this these are my peers. You know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it takes it takes away that come at me, bro, dynamic. Yeah. Said so we're we're cooperative at that point. Right, right. And also, if you're in a group, yeah, someone's across from you, but you have a decision, you know, to make. You can you can look at them in the eye, or you can look off to the side, or whatever. Whereas, mm-hmm. uh, if you're if you're just face to face, dead on, then you know, where else mm-hmm. are you gonna look? You know. You can have a staring yeah. contest. Nobody likes that. <laughs> exactly. In fact, Lori put another something else here in the comments about, you know, it, it, that fear element and mm-hmm. standing shoulder can take that away and it takes away the whole element of attack. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's far mm-hmm. less confrontational. Right. Uh, even, and and, and also, if you, circle, even if you're feeling something from someone across the circle, you have this half of the circle backing you up. Exactly. And if you think about it, too, I, I guess the image that comes to my mind is like, you know, the Amish, the barn raisings, all that kind of stuff. Men have a, a lineage and sort of an archetypal traditional history of working shoulder to shoulder to get things done. Uh, so right. that's sort of a, it's almost like a, a it's almost like it's in our DNA, you know, right. to, to, to assume that kind of posture. You think about military campaigns, you think about all sorts of things, you know, uh, you know, men being shoulder to shoulder with uh, some sort of focus uh and uh so i I think it's it's a very good observation and it was one of those things for me it just kind of opened my eyes it's like i think that's why you know some nice traditional therapy is difficult for men uh because uh there is that premium on sort of face-to-face contact verbalization and all that sort of thing and of course in groups you have verbalization but it's kind of distributed around you know so that people uh you're not you're not you're not the focus unless you want to be yeah 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 and in fact Lori mentioned think of the football game and the huddle even yeah exactly yeah yeah very good mm-hmm. examples yeah yeah yeah, sports, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, so so your refusal to tell people what to do noted <laughs> if, if a if a man uh comes to you you meet him on the street however he comes across and he just admits that you know i'm not happy i feel stuck everything sucks i don't know what to do is mm-hmm. there one first step you are most likely to recommend? 
Well, I recommend that he book a free discovery session with me so we can talk about it. Um, but uh, aside from that, I would say, um, <clears throat> I think it's important to, when you say you feel stuck, to really get clear about what the, what is it, what is it that's making you feel stuck? So what is the thing or the set of things that you think you should have or you would like to have or you expected to have that you don't have? Uh, and, you know, one good exercise to do is to imagine yourself having those things uh, and then kind of back it up a little bit and go, okay, what's in the way? Uh, because if you can identify what it is that you want and if you can identify what's in the way, even if it's just kind of a general thing, you know, right. um, even if you can say, well, and of course, the, the typical thing is like, well, I'd like to have a better job and what's in the way? Well, I've got all these obligations and all that kind of stuff. But you have to kind of like dig underneath that a little bit uh, and, and sort of start to have that conversation with yourself. And I think part of it, too, is to think about, you know, can you identify a time in your life when you felt like everything was possible? Uh, and then notice what happened after that, you know, what caused that to change? And, uh, and, and that's another clue that you can start to look at, because I think if we're not careful throughout our lives, we tend to get, kind of get stripped down, uh, you know, because parts of ourselves get stripped away. Uh, sometimes that's a conscious decision. Like, it's like, okay, I need to stop partying so much because, uh, you know, it's, it's not working. Uh, or sometimes it's, a, it's like, okay, I, I have to put down the guitar because I've got to go to work every day and I've got kids and I don't have time. And every time you drop something like that, even though it might not seem like it's directly related to the thing that you're not getting, uh, that's a part of yourself that you've just sort of dropped or set aside or told to go away. And, uh, you know, that, uh, that's part of your vitality. Uh, that you've essentially refused. And right. if you can identify parts of your vitality that you've essentially refused and, and find ways to bring them back in. So like, okay, so you're not going to, you know, party all night and wake up with hangovers and stuff. It's like, okay, but there's still a part of yourself that, that, uh, that likes something about that experience. Can you have that experience in a different way and pull that in? And as you start to pull those different aspects in, then you start to get your vitality back and you start to get your power back. And then you start to feel like, hey, maybe I can move on this thing. Right. So uh, what's the best way for people to, to reach out to you, get in touch, learn more about you? Yeah, so my uh, website is rickbeldencoaching.com, all one word. And as I, uh, as I said earlier, I do offer a, a free one-hour discovery session uh, that you can book on the site with me. And the whole purpose of that is just to have a conversation and just do some exploration about whatever you think might be holding you up or hanging you up or where you feel stuck. Uh, and uh, see if we can uh, start to identify uh, some of the things I talked about earlier to help you get moving uh, so that you can actually uh, live out your, your potential, you know, and have the kind of life that you deserve and not feel like you're just hamstrung and just stuck uh, and you have to just stay miserable and unhappy because you don't. Beautiful. Yep. So, uh, yeah, and uh, kind of what I'm getting out of this and hearing the most is be willing to have that conversation with an individual, with, with a coach, with a group of men, with yourself in a journal, um, with yourself via meditation, but don't just keep sitting on your junk. Yeah, I guess if I had to sum it up in one word, it would be explore. Mm. You know? So get your pit helmet, get your magnifying glass, <laughs> and go in. That's an interesting combination, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you don't know what you're going to face. You have to have all these... <laughs> And that's a great thing for men because you no know, men has have a well human beings in general, but men in particular really have that tendency to want to explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely exploring and building. You know, yeah. those are things that traditionally men like to do.
Yep. Um, and and the, the whole theme reminds me of uh, arguably the best Andy, Indiana Jones movie, a great archetypal explorer, is when they introduced his father. Exactly, all- yeah. <laughs> and by the, by the way, that's an, I'm glad you brought that up, Andy, because that's another great way to uh, begin to initiate some better understanding of these. You know, that's a great movie about looking at father and son relationships. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there was a father wound that was evident. Uh, between the two of them in that movie, and you see the you see the roots of it early on uh, when Indy is young, and then you see how it plays out as they have this adventure together, and you see them actually come to know each other. And I'm so glad you brought this up because to me this is the number one thing uh, that you aside from what you get out of this for yourself, uh, you'll know when you're really starting to make some headway on father wound and mother wound when you can see them as individuals, when you can see them as somebody other than your parents that have their own life, they have their own failures and their own flaws, they have all the things that they thought they were gonna do when they were young that they didn't get to do, and they existed before you did. They really are separate individuals. They're they're not just your father or your mother, and that might sound a little oversimplified, but the reality of it is really profound when it hits you, because both times when that hit me with both of my parents, it was just like my, my field of vision opened up, and I never saw them the same way again. And I think that's part of what is uh, actually so amply uh, illustrated in that movie that you talked about. What is that, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Yep, that's the one. Yeah, you see that process unfold, and you see the process of Harrison Ford's character asserting himself as an adult, uh, which is just so important. However you do it, sometimes you can do it in the presence of the parent, and they'll get it, and that'll change the relationship. Sometimes the parent isn't going to get it. You just have to do it anyway. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much, uh, Rick. And I'll let everyone know that Rick is already scheduled to join us again next month for a return visit. And uh, I think that's the, might be the first time we've done that. No, no, the first time has even ended and we know you're coming back. So, uh, so okay. you, passed, you passed the group test. <laughs> I'm very happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you, Apio. Thank you, everyone else for listening. And uh, hey, I was going to say thanks, that, uh, you know, Rick, especially. I mean, very insightful. And boy, I heard, I, I definitely can see a lot of my own issues there. But uh, hey, no, this has been really good and a wonderful conversation. Well, yeah, thanks to both of you for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yep, pleasure. And uh, we'll talk to everyone again soon. Be well. Okay, great. Have a good night, guys. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Until next week, visit realmenfeel.org or the Real Men Feel Facebook group and share what you thought of this episode. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Show us some love by visiting realmenfeel.org slash swag or digitaltipjar.com slash realmenfeel. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com and Apio Hunter at apiohunter.com.